Hi, everybody. Continuing the long tradition of having fantastic guests on my show today, I've got Glenn Beck. How are you doing, Glenn? I'm great, Ken. How are you? Good. I want to just, for the few people who don't know who you are, maybe somebody lives in the Hadza tribe in Central Africa, doesn't know you. <laughs> You're a political commentator, radio host, New York Times, best-selling author, founder of The Blaze. And of course, your most important accolade is that you are now a personal friend of yours truly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, again, I was just thinking, I, uh, I was as I was walking to the studio, I so enjoy you. I watch you. I listen to you. Um, you know, when we met and you know, what's weird is, uh, I associate you with happy, joyful, oh, which that is such that, a... it's true though. That's, that's how I was just thinking. I was so excited to, to talk to you. And I was, I was thinking like, why, what was the last time we talked? What were we talking about? And I can't, honestly, I cannot remember, but I just remember it. it it's associated in my head with happiness you know that is such a sweet thing of you to say and in a sense it's quite fortuitous because and not to engage in shameless plugging right after such a <laughs> lovely compliment but my next book is about how to live the good happy life and it is precisely based on the fact that people say the types of things that you tell me and i said well why don't i put it in a recipe book it's and see what comes out of that. What so do you think? So can I, can I just hijack this here for a second? Or go, go. Way off the rails. It's your show. So, Gad, I have been, uh, you, know, I, I, uh, you know, I've been smeared by the best of them. Uh, and I've also made mistakes or said things that at the time seemed really horrible. And later, 10 years later, it seems to be exactly accurate. Um, and I've been calling for a time that that was coming that is what we're living through right now and uh i i know how this uh goes and i'm having the hardest time doing my job i i i honestly every break in the in the radio program i have to take deep breaths um i think i am i mean i think i'm getting an ulcer i mean i am just so tied up and I drop everything. I don't even look at the news for 21 hours. Uh, I come in and I do a quick recap on everything and then I go back and I'm perfectly happy when I'm with my family, but I've cut everything else out of my life or I can't do my job. You know, how can I, how can I do my job and look at all of the things and, and talk about the things that I know what it means and not just be miserable. Well, I guess a couple of things. I appreciate you asking that question. I think Tucker Carlson recently on a wonderful chat with Megan Kelly said yeah. that he doesn't even consume the news, to which she answered, well, then how can you do your job? He said, well, he just has a few people that he trusts. He texts them and they kind of serve as gatekeepers for him so that he yeah. can stay. So maybe I there's... do that too. Oh, okay. There that. you go. <laughs> I do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, I have those gatekeepers. It's just the three hours on the air... You know, I just uh, I am just so concerned. People are living in the normalcy bias right now yeah. and uh, they just don't they just refuse to take the step that uh, will allow them to see what things actually mean and what's really coming their way. And uh, they're going to be shocked and horrified when they get to those consequences and uh, and we'll be in I the just, back. We'll be in the back row telling them we told you so for for the past twenty years, right? I, I know. I don't. I don't want to be in the back row saying that. I just. I. 
I don't know. I want, by the way, I don't know if you want to start. Uh, I didn't, I meant to plug, not that you need my platform to plug your book, but uh, your book that's coming out January 11th, 2022, yeah. The Great Reset, Joe Biden and the Rise of 21st Century fas Fascism. Maybe you want to start us off on what that book is all about. Um, I think that is this is this is probably the most important thing that people need to look at, and that is the financial sector. Something is very, very wrong in the financial sector. It has been wrong for quite some time. Um, but the the great reset when Joe Biden says, I want to build back better, um, Google that and put uh, prime minister of England, prime minister of Japan, uh, France, president of France. You will see all of the Western people are using build back better right now. It's not a campaign slogan. It is a slogan for the Great Reset. And what's happening right now, it was just released by the White House at whitehouse.gov uh, a couple of Fridays ago. Um, and this new Treasury um, uh, person that is coming in for the Office of Comptroller, they are, they are remaking the entire financial system to where uh, the government the big corporations and the banks kind of are all working together in a public-private partnership. And it means that those corporations will do what the government wants them to do. It's, a, it's central planning uh, on steroids, and it's really for the entire Western world. Uh, and it's not going to end well, and it controls from food, food distribution, the way we grow it, it's the reason why hamburger is now at about, what, 10 or $11 a pound, um, because it's all being manipulated. And they are putting this structure in right now. And uh, I, I personally think in 10 years, because of the food aspect of it, it's going to look, uh, the five-year plan by Mao, it's going to look a lot like that in the end. You know, the, 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 the penchant for a great reset is really found in countless totalitarian ideologies right so in islam you know everything is broken down temporarily into what was before islam which was mm. the dark the the darkness and then the light of islam came to shine the light on the world and then there is in a sense the great reset when islam comes in right you have it with uh, the cambodian uh, you know dictators you have it with the mao so there's always this pension of resetting yeah. everything because what was there before we came along was polluted was wrong was uh degenerate and here we are be thankful that we are here to create the great reset so it's in a sense it's just a the the old story repackaged under the democrat party right and it's what's terrifying to me is people can't get past words that have changed meaning so many times to see this for instance I hate being called a conservative now because I don't know what conservatives are trying to conserve. You know what I mean? Uh, a conservative should be trying to conserve those things that have worked and have time-tested value. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, okay? The bathwater is clearly dirty, but freedom and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, that works, but we haven't been using it for about 100 years. That's what a conservative should be doing. I'm a classic liberal, but FDR took that term and bastardized it 
took the libertarian chair away from the table. There's no chair at the table for a libertarian. Um, and he took that and bastardized it into something that is big government. We we really, I think, Gad, the reason why we like each other, we might not, we might not agree on, I know we don't agree on God, and there might be a lot of things that we don't agree on, but my principles are your principles. Yeah. You can hold that value, and I can hold my value, and we can live side by side and be happy. It's, and you can talk to me about how crazy I am, and I can talk to you about how crazy yeah. you are for believing something opposite. But in the end, you don't try to force me to go your way, and I don't try to force you. That's the Western value that we're missing now. Bingo. Uh, I, I would add another thing that I think draws folks like us to one another, which then I want to link to, say, someone like Kamala Harris, who exhibits the opposite trait, is I think, if I can speak for both of us, likability, certainly, <laughs> authenticity, right? I remember, yeah. I want to tell a quick story about how you and I, I mean, we had communicated, but we met when you so graciously invited me down to hang out with you in Texas. And the first thing that I'll say, and I always joke about this with my wife, I say, try to have dinner with three guys while you're waiting in the lineup to, to be seated at a steakhouse where you come up to their knees. Because I think you were the shortest guy other than me and you were about four feet taller than me. And I mean, I'm just I'm just an average <laughs> soccer player height guy. I'm the average height of, of people around the world. And meanwhile, you towered over me by about four feet and you were shorter than the two other guys, if you remember. I think Tyler was one and the other yeah. gentleman, his name escapes me. Well, anyways, as we sat down, you know, there was no pretense about you. You weren't the famous Glenn Beck. You were super warm. You were kind. You were, it's as if old friends were getting together. I think that element is something that draws like-minded, authentic people to each other. They could smell each other from 10 miles away. And oh, then that so. makes me wonder then, so then let me bring it to Kamala. What is it that can make you or me or millions of other people cringe at every syllable she utters because she's so inauthentic and yet other people called humans don't see that inauthenticity. Help us out, Dr. Beck. Oh, I don't know if I can. Let me give you a couple theories. Um, the reason why we're authentic is because for some reason or another, and I say this carefully, we're not afraid you know, we're not afraid of being exposed yeah. because we just lay it all out there. And if you don't like I'm comfortable enough in my own skin. So are you that if you don't like me, that's fine. I don't really care. And I'm not willing to change who I am to be more popular. I've right. done that before. That's a nightmare that leads to alcoholism. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so the people that don't sense it. I think just haven't shed their own fear yet. Yeah. It's very empowering when you, you know, I was in, I was at Fox news and, um, I'll cut this short, the story really, really short, but, um, I was being threatened by somebody at Fox news and I, I'm so open. They had nothing to threaten me. on. I knew that they were bluffing when they said, we've got some stuff. We've heard some things. Have you really? Go ahead. Tell me. What is it? Because I know my own life. Right. And it is so freeing and empowering. It's the opposite of what you expect to happen. You expect that when you would share with somebody your flaws or the worst things that you've ever done, that it's going to cripple you. It does the opposite. It frees you except for those who just want power because they will still try to play on your fear 
because Very true. They, they that's that's the world they live in and she is so afraid of being exposed jo- joe biden can you imagine having handlers where they shut you down shut your microphone off you're the president of the united states it's unbelievable everybody there is living in fear well yeah i mean we you and i i think you had me on uh it wasn't in texas but more recently where you asked me about you know what why do people uh dislike donald trump and i and i this is something that i discussed in the parasitic mind and i still am baffled in looking at many of my so-called intellectual colleagues who are unable to look at someone like joe biden at someone like kamala harris and are so intox and i don't know if i mentioned this uh this uh saying it's an arabic saying maybe i did mention it on the show but it's worth repeating imagine if this were a the cork of a wine bottle uh so there's an ex- expression in arabic that says getting drunk by simply smelling the cork of the wine bottle, which basically means what? I I am so weak and feeble that I don't need to actually go through the hard work of drinking the wine to get drunk. I simply get drunk by smelling, smelling the cork. Now, how do we apply this to Barack Obama or to Donald Trump? Well, people who get drunk smelling the cork of Barack Obama, well, he's tall. He's lanky. He's got a radiant smile. He's got a mellifluous voice. So he must be a prophet. On the other hand, Donald Trump is this kind of overweight, ogre, obnoxious. Mm -hmm. He's disgusting. So again, you're using peripheral cues. You're getting drunk simply by smelling the cork. And it's an impenetrable bias because otherwise very intelligent people that I know are intelligent truly believe that Donald Trump was going to usher a nuclear holocaust, was going to outlaw sex, was going to marshal, you know, marshal, uh, I mean, uh, martial law and democracy. He was going to end the economy. We were going to do barter, right? I'm going to give you my shoe for your fish. The economy, they, they weren't being hyperbolic. They were being literal. How do we get through to those idiots? Uh, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know if you can. I think there's a uh, we're at a, a breaking point here where your delusions on either side, on either side. There are people also that look and say Donald Trump was the savior of everything and he could do no wrong. That's not true either. You know, you have to be you have to be authentic with yourself. And that means, Gad, that when new information comes to you, I was very dead set against Donald Trump because I thought he was going to be an absolute nightmare. But when new information came in and he wasn't doing those things, I agreed with most of his policies. And I had to be honest with myself and say, I was wrong. Because you're, yeah, epistem- you- because you're epistemologically authentic. That's another part of yes. authenticity. Exactly. Yes. And so, and, and I didn't do that. You know, I knew I was going to be called uh, a sellout by some people. And I knew I was going to always be called a traitor to other people. And it didn't matter to me. It hurt when that, when that happened. But what was, what was important to me was being true to yourself. And so there's a lot of people that on both sides that cannot accept that they voted the wrong way. Yeah. They cannot accept that this is actually happening because if they do, it will require them to admit that they were a wrong were wrong in many different places. And people are people right now are just trying to win. And when that happens, Nobody wins. Nobody wins. Well, you have to look for reconciliation inside of yourself. Reconcile with the truth. 
and reconcile with the truth with everyone else. That way there's no losers. Yeah, amen. I mean, that's why I always say don't belong to any political tribes, rather belong to the tribe of truth. Now that someone can come and say, but what, what, what is true to you might not be true to me. Well, no, there are certain foundational principles, deontological principles, meaning they're absolute truths, right? Presumption mm -hmm. of innocence is something that I never waver away from for political expediency. And yet you have a lot of my super uh, progressive, uh, nuanced thinker colleagues who, when it came to Brett Kavanaugh, presumption of innocence could go out the window because you know he's just such a bad guy right oh you're moving your screen is moving De maybe move yeah, it back to deadly, the center sorry. yeah can you move it back guys yeah it's it's deadly when you get when you get there right um, or, or, or for example when donald trump was taken off uh twitter some guys who I would have thought were quite absolutist in their defense of freedom of speech suddenly yeah. said, oh, but no, but when it comes to Donald Trump, he's so dangerous that the clause or the principle of freedom of speech simply doesn't apply to them. So there is such a thing called truth that is outside of our personal biases. And if we commit to that, then if we're going to be tribal, at least be tribal to truth rather than to a political so party. I am, I am with you on this, Gad, and I've been saying, and I don't know if this... I really truly believe this would work, but I don't know enough people that would actually do it. And that is stop having conversations about the daily news and start having conversations about the Bill of Rights. Right. Because those things are true. Yeah. And if I if you can't agree with me, just give me nine out of the ten. If you can't agree with me on the Bill of Rights then you've moved so far into a radical position uh, where you're denying that these rights are truly held by individuals and the government is instituted to protect man and those rights, that we can have a conversation. But I still truly believe if you cannot make it about politics, you will be able to have a, uh, a, a conversation and a uniting conversation all around the rights. Right. Well, I, 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 there's a quote that I use in my last book. I can't remember it exactly. I'm going to butcher it now. But something like, you know, small-minded people gossip about other people, whereas, mm -hmm. uh, you know, intelligent, highbrow people talk about ideas, right? So if you and I are sitting and just gossiping about... Uh, Alexandra People. Cortez, then we are gossiping about an individual. Whereas I'd like to sit down with you and talk about, so is there any context where absolute freedom of speech should be uh, contingent, right? That's, it goes above individual actors, right? It's a principle that we are discussing. And I think that's not an easy pension for most people to have because we've evolved as an evolutionary psychologist. I can tell you that we've evolved to gossip about the mundane, right? Hey, did you hear the neighbor? She's cheating on her husband. Hey, did you hear? He's impotent. He's not performing in the bedroom. So people are stuck in the daily mundane reality and that's what they gossip about. So the daily news becomes intoxicating to me because it's easy for me to gossip about individual yeah. players. Does that make sense? Really good. Yeah, that makes total sense. Really good. But I think I think that's what people are, that's why people are listening and watching you um, because they will, they're looking for something of value and of meaning. And I think that's why the suicide rates are through the roof. Nothing is real. Nothing really matters. Um, and we can have all this technology and still be real. Yeah. But it forces us to be 
authentic. Well, be who we really are. So to go back to authentic, forgive me for interrupting you. I hope I didn't. Uh, let's talk about the number one guy in the world in terms of a show, even bigger than Glenn Beck, Joe <laughs> Rogan. What's his yeah. number one trait? He's authentic. He's wrong a lot of times. He, he admits when he's wrong. He shoots from the hip a lot of times without knowing necessarily what he's talking about. Yeah. But what you see is what you get. There is no modulation. There is, And guess what? I mean, and you know this way better than, than I do. You've had a longer sort of public life career than I have. I was nothing but a professor until a few years ago. Uh, the camera picks that up so easily. I mean, it's kind of like oh, yeah. an electronic microscope that goes down to your cellular level, right? So if you and I are sitting now having a... Com- I, by the way, I get tons of emails from people who say, I've stopped I've stopped watching TV. I just wait for your shoulder drop so I can have some sanity back. Mm-hmm. You know how proud that makes you feel that you're actually yeah. putting out content that's causing people to bond with you in, in such a deep level? That gives you purpose and meaning. Yeah, it does. And in your case, positive, something of joy, you know, I I go back to what we originally talked to my, my, I think my calling in, in life, uh, is to expose and to warn. And I hate it, Gad. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. it. Um, you know, nobody likes to be told, Hey, you know what you're, you know, you're fat. You should lose some weight. Nobody likes that. Uh, by the way, I haven't seen you remark about my astonishing weight astonishing loss since I last loss. saw you. I'm a bit yeah, hurt by the lack of compliment. Oh, well, <laughs> you look nice if that's so. I mean, I work hard for this body. Gap. Oh, my God. I you're mean, sexy. You do, not, you do not have a body like this without working hard. Technic- I, like this all the time. <laughs> all the time. I can call you technically Chris DeBerg's famous song, Lady in Red, because technically, even though you have a mustache and goatee, you could potentially be a lady. I could be a lady so or you, not. Or not. <laughs> you know, I read, uh, I can never say this guy's name, Alexander Stolis Nietzsche. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Sounds um, good enough. I read his uh, essay uh, about not living with lies, and he wrote it to the people of Moscow uh right before he thought he was going into a gulag again but he was actually uh allowed to to leave um and gad you should read it because it 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 reads like today oh yeah it to us it's prophetic it's prophetic it's unbelievable it is and if we would just all do those things just cut the lies out of our own life you know you just joked about i could technically be a woman no i can't no, I can't. And you know how I know that to be true? Because you have if a penis? I a, <laughs> no. If I had all kinds of reconstructive surgery and everything else, and uh, and I, my friend did, and they're now a, a woman, I'm taking them to the hospital. I do tell the doctor she's actually a man because that's important for them yeah. to know to save her life possibly. That's how you know when truth is happening, when it's up against the wall and it's life or death. I need to know man or woman. 
man. But and that's why my so in 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 the parasitic mind when I was talking about all the various parasitic ideas and idea pathogens and so on, I wanted to look for some commonality across all these bad ideas: postmodernism, cultural relativism, mm-hmm. militant feminism, uh, social constructivism. And what I found across all these dreadful ideas is that they <laughs> each wanted to free you from the pesky shackles of reality, right? So take, for example, social constructivism, okay? Social constructivism is the idea that everything is due to a social construction. We are born empty slates with equal potentiality, and anything that then differentiates me from Glenn Beck is some unique socialization trajectory that we each had, okay? Well, Hang that's- Hang on just a second. Hang on just a second. Sure. You know what that used to be called? Uh, my dad would talk about things like that. My dad would call it um, mental masturbation. <laughs> but now, now it's not. Now it's full-fledged sex that you must have. There you go. Uh, well, your dad was a sharp guy. Uh, he's not alive anymore, is he? No, he passed. May his soul rest in peace. Uh, but Thank anyways, you. so uh, so social constructivism is very hopeful. Why? Because if I'm a parent, I love the, the narrative that my son could grow up to be the next Michael Jordan or the next Albert Einstein. I like the idea that if it's only the right socialization mechanisms that I introduce in his life, he will be the next Michael Jordan. I don't want this pesky reality that says, no, wait a minute, your son could never have the musculature that will allow him to jump as high as Michael Jordan. So that pesky shackle of reality hurts me. Therefore, I will construct an alternative narrative that allows my son or yours to be anything that they wish to be. Same thing with the trans prefix, right? Now, again, what I'm about to say, I shouldn't have to preface this. I'm all for transgender rights and everybody living free of bigotry. Live the way you live. Exactly. But that doesn't mean that this pesky reality called my genitalia, I can get rid of it simply by putting the prefix trans before it, right? I, I mocked this kind of idea in the parasitic mind where I said, I'm going to enter a judo competition as a under eight player because I engage in trans ageism. So even though I'm 57 now, I identify as seven. And then using trans gravity, I'm gonna enter the under 120 pound category <laughs> because I saw, well, but that's what it is, right? Right, okay. right. By the way, just a quick, a quick funny story. So in, in, in at one point, you know, I always do these satirical tweets and so on. I had gone to see my personal physician for the yearly checkup. I said, so doc, how's the cholesterol? How is this, how is that? He said, well, he's looking at his iPad and he goes, well, actually, I'm not worried about your cholesterol. I'm worried about your sanity. I said, well, why? What do you mean? So he points to some tweets, not realizing that I was being satirical. He thought I was, because I was saying, you know, when my physician tells me to lose weight, he's being uh, bigoted against the differentially weighted. Right, but, right. And he, he completely missed the satire. So even yeah. fancy physicians apparently need more education and humor. Yeah, I think that could be said about a lot of people who have a lot of education right now. It's um, it's uh, a bizarre world where we are now being told to not believe our eyes. And at the same time, we can't believe our eyes because of technology. Now, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the deep fakes that are going around that are so good 
I swear to you, I thought that uh, Tom Cruise could play a classical guitar. <laughs> Apparently deep fake. But it is so good that you can't you can't discern whether it's not with the naked eye. So now you are told not to believe your eyes, but you also shouldn't believe your eyes when it comes to technology. And that makes that makes being in tune with the truth and your own authentic self so much more important because the only thing that you're going to have to guide you with the truth is what you know, what you believe and what you feel is, is true because the, the, the guides, the markers are all off. The GPS is, you know, out 50 degrees. So how do you know what's true? Well, let me, speaking of being true. So I am someone who is, you know, pathologically uh, honest to, to, to a fault. I used to, my mother used to always tell me, Gad, the world doesn't operate according to your purity bubble. It has a lot of grays. It has a lot of nuances. She used to tell me this when I was a kid. So now I'm facing a situation. I, I want to seek your uh, wise counsel and I'm doing it publicly. So I have these unbelievable detractors, well, tormentors, who since my book dropped, Come, are coming after me with unbelievable defamation. I never heard of these guys, never heard of any of their work, never seen like real, really yeah. nasty folks of the... Uh, you must be, you must be over the target. Yeah, right. So let's just put it this way. They're sort of white power type of guys and they go around to every single place spreading unbelievable defamatory things about me. My publicist had said to me, Gad, you know, the world knows who you are. And the world knows who they are. You should never engage them. You should never, you know, uh, try to correct them because then, you know, you're sinking to their level. It's never going to lead anywhere. And so, you know, I I stuck to her words and recently they've kind of resurfaced. And now I'm kind of debating within myself. Do I go and set the record with them or by doing that? Then I open myself up to the Streisand effect. If you know what, do you know what the Streisand effect is? Are you, the Streisand no, effect you, comes from you become Bar- a bitch. No, you. Ba- <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true too. No, basically uh. she 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 put the limelight on an issue. Had she not put the limelight on limelight on it, it wouldn't have blown up to a much bigger limelight. Had she just ignored it, it would have gone away. So that now be- has become. So I, I. So what do you I think? I think I've been I've. You know, I've done media for 40 plus years now. And uh, in the last 20, it has been a harrowing uh, situation, just harrowing. Um, and I go back and forth because uh, if you make a big deal out of it, it does it does do the Streisand effect. Um, but there are times when uh, I really... I really think that it is important to tell the truth or to not tell the truth, but to tell the truth about what people are saying and doing. And that's if it transcends just those. Oh, you froze. Then just the one they're making. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Then I think it's, then I think it's worth doing, but I mean, they want you to respond. They want you to respond. Don't respond. Yeah. Unless you can use it to make a much bigger point than just you. 
Exactly right. That's actually what I told my wife. I said, one of the things that I could do is I could put out, for example, a sad truth clip where I discuss the dynamics of what's happening, correct whatever nonsense. They, I mean, the stuff that they're saying are, it's just astonishing. It's like, it's a diabolical meta theft of your personhood and so it's just it's brutal it's crazy and, and, and I you can, know what gab come, yeah, yeah go, go ahead go ahead finish off no, no i was just gonna say i could i could package that without ever mentioning them so that other people who might be facing similar situations at least know that they are not alone i mean think about the young a teenage girl who gets an e-mob from her school. She doesn't have the thick skin of Glenn Beck or Gatsad. Even though we're human, it, it hurts us, but we can deal it with it. We can sort of go like this because right. we know who we are. So maybe doing it that way could be a, a good so attack. I think if you, I think if you delve into it on, let's just say, the suicides that happen because of the, uh, of the mobs, there's a great, uh, gosh, there's a great book, Oh, I can't remember, but it's, it looks at all of the people that had just been destroyed in the media um, who are just average people. Yeah. And it is it's a horror show what happens to them. So I think if you were making the point on a bigger scale that it's useful, look, here's how I deal with it. Here's what they say. Here's what's true. Now, how do you deal with that and move on from your life when you know these dogs are nipping at your heels? Yeah. I would watch that. I would yeah. want to know yeah. that. Okay, you know, yeah, that, that really helps you. Just that, has to be something bigger than you. Otherwise, you give them what they want for nothing. So true. Beautifully said. Okay, I'm going to hit you with different... Wait, wait, wait. I wanted to oh, say go, something go, go. to you, too. About, yeah, yeah, go. Um, you and I, when, when you were talking about this, about how it hurts when we're human, you and I are, I think, very much alike. That, And I got to there from alcoholism. You know, when you're an alcoholic, you lie about everything and uh, nobody ends up believing you uh, at the end because you've just played every single card you have. So when I bottomed out, I had nothing left, Uh, didn't have a job, didn't have money, didn't have family. All of it was gone. And that's when you really know what's of value. And it's not the money or anything else. And for me, it was my honor it was exactly yeah it was the idea that uh someone will believe what i say when i say it doesn't matter what it is but i can say to them no this is true and they they, i may be wrong because i've misinterpreted or whatever but they know i believed that yeah and um that's been the hardest thing because i work really hard at that let your yes be yes, your no be no, and and tell the truth. It's the only thing that keeps me from drinking, quite honestly. Yeah. And so when people come after you and accuse you of of real dishonesty and you're just a fake and you don't actually believe this or whatever, that hurts. That hurts. And I think I I just wanted to say that because I think you probably feel the same way. When people come after you on your character, when you are nothing like that exactly it's a special kind of arrow and and in my case it's even more profound the hurt in the following sense and this maybe relates back to my purity bubble that my mother told me to get out of i genuinely am offended by the fact that such people exist in other words my pure Mm -hmm. mind cannot have so my wife will say why are you upset now i said because I can't believe that they could be 
this dishonest, this diabolical, this thieving, <laughs> right? And 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 you so know, I, I have to tell you, Ken, I I I do believe that when you reach the Zen state, when you reach the Gandhi state, the uh, the state of being that Jesus had, um, you actually feel sympathy for those who accuse because you can see how twisted their life has become and how much pain. They I'm have definitely to be. not there. I'm definitely not. No, Jesus. I know. I know. <laughs> and, and what's been hard for me is because I have gotten there a few times, uh, not often, but a few times on a few things. But what gets me is what stops that is there's a point to where, you know, you know, it's not true. And what you're doing is diabolical. You are, you are standing against something that you know is true and you're doing it intentionally um, to destroy. Yeah. I, that's just evil to me. And it, I have a hard time getting my to, arms to, around To that. give you a sense to how pathologically pure I am, I kind of have the following fantasies regarding such people, that there is a way that I can reach them so that by the end of that process, they will turn to me and say, I'm truly sorry for yeah, having written those things. Me too. Isn't that amazing, right? Yeah. So, so it's, it's almost like it's not because, oh, I'm such a prophet or something. It's because I genuinely want to reach wherever their humanity lies and say, man, you don't have to lie. You don't have and to cheat. You don't have to try to advance yourself by defaming me. Just do your thing, brother, and hopefully good things will happen to you. But my wife looks at me and she goes, are you real? Like, are you a psychologist, so, really? <laughs> so let me let me tell you, I think you, I think you are real. Um, I think uh, I, I, I have an example of this. A guy who is one of the bigger names in producing and writing in all of Hollywood, television, movies. I mean, he is a massive, massive name. Um Years ago, seven years ago, um, they wanted to do an animated TV series uh, around me. And there was going to be another uh, person who was the exact opposite of me uh, playing uh, the uh, the other side. And uh, I thought it was really funny. And this guy is a brilliant comedy writer. And uh, when I first heard that that he was coming out, I thought, Wow, that's a big gun. But also, isn't he a communist? And uh, I couldn't imagine that, you know, he would be able to just write my POV. And uh, he came in and I reached out to shake hands with him. And Gad, I'm not kidding you. His hands were shaking. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. I've heard about you. He said, I have waited for years to say things about as they say things to your face wow. and I've got a lot to say and I'm not going to be uh, spun into your web because I hear once people meet with you, you turn out to be exactly the opposite. <laughs> well, I'm too smart for that. And I said, okay, this was a business meeting. We sat down in my office and he went off for 30 minutes, not I didn't, just a monologue. But about what? Minutes. Like your ideological position? Me, what yeah, was everything. Okay. Everything that I've ever said, ever done, and how I'm just destroying the planet, and you name it, I was the Antichrist. 
And he finally kind of caught himself because, again, it was a business meeting. There were a lot of big people in this meeting. And uh, he said, okay, I'm sorry. Because uh, somebody had touched his arm. And he's like, <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Uh, let's talk. And I said, mm, we can't talk until you get it all out. And there is a lot more for you to say. <laughs> and he said, well, you're damn right. And then he went for another 20 minutes. I had five minutes with him after that before I had to leave. And uh, he, uh, he shook my hand at the end. And he said, because um, when he finished, I said, do you feel better? And he said, yeah, I, I really do. And I said, good. We could argue those things, but there's no point in that. You'll believe what you believe. But I'm just telling you, experience will show you that that's not who I am. And when I left, he said, I feel really bad because I, like I, I don't think he's the guy that everybody said yeah. he is. Um, and so it does occasionally happen and we correspond from time to time. I was going to ask you if you were friends now. Oh yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't call us friends, but we, we correspond and he will be like, you know, I just saw this. I saw you do this, you know, on a good side or a bad side and we'll talk about it and it's cool. And that's, that's the way we're supposed to be. What a beautiful story. All right. Let's talk about, uh, Dave Chappelle. Let's mm. let's talk about because he's a that's another authentic guy. Uh, be, oh yeah, and I have oh, and he's, you know what I love about Dave. Have you seen the latest special? Oh, I did. I just did a okay, sad okay. truth clip on it. Okay, so uh, uh, I, I'm I'm a little prudish. Uh, I'm not like my wife who is very offended at stuff. But I there are there are lines for me and I've gone to a Dave Chappelle show with my wife and we both enjoyed it. But there are times that I go, oh, gosh, that's yeah. a that's really graphic. You know what I mean? Um, uh, some of the things that he says that are just so offensive to me, um, but most everybody else wouldn't wouldn't bother. Um, but I I'm a fan of his because he is truly, truly funny. Yeah. Um, and really, really honest. And uh, when you watch him, the, especially the last special, there's two things that come out of that. One, he he knows he knows exactly what he's saying. He know he's only saying much of it just to needle people. Did you notice several times he would say things and then he would laugh? He would, he would look yeah, and be yeah. like, oh, boy, you know, he knows what's coming after him. Which makes me like him even more. I'm not afraid. Yeah. Burn me at the stake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say it because that's the right thing to do. That came across. The other thing is I fail to see how he is at all a trans bigot. Um, you listen to his last story about his friend in San Francisco. Daphne. And that guy is, I mean, that's. That's Robin Williams kind of heart. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very few com comedians open themselves up to be that vulnerable. And that was a beautiful story. Beautiful story. And should have been the end of all of it. Yeah. All of it. Well, that's But, why, I, that's why yeah. I, number one, I was super pissed when George Takai, uh, is that, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. The, he <laughs> yeah. put out a thing. So I went after him on Twitter. And then, of course, people came after me for going after him. So number George. one. There, there's George, no there's you, no way you could have that position no. if you actually watched 
the 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 special nope. because you would have come up come away with the opposite position exactly the second exactly. point exactly the other thing i was going to say and i i don't know if you picked that up because earlier you and i were talking about look we're human and of course even though you know we're honey badgers it, it does hurt us i got the distinct feeling glenn that part of why he did that special is because the insults you know of him being a transphobe and so on were getting to him they were gnawing at him and so the daphne story is sort of you don't think so oh i do yeah okay i i i think that i mean i think again that is the sign of a really authentic and good person exactly right i mean i you know people said to me i don't know a few years back um because i uh, you know when i when i was at cnn i left there in 2008 uh, December 2007, and that December I was I was voted on that stupid list of most admired men in the world, and I was tied, honest to God, tied for third or fourth between Nelson Mandela oh, and the Pope. Oh my okay? goodness! And I'm like, shit, this this is how screwed up America is. <laughs> if I'm on that list, I belong nowhere on that list. Then I went to Fox and I did exactly the same show. And a year later, I was the most hated man in America. Okay, still had my fans, but half of the country thought I was the Antichrist. I did the same show on another network. How does that work? Right. But then being there and getting the the hits for three years that were just, I couldn't walk down the street with my children. Uh, They had to walk in front or behind me. Uh, I went nowhere without at least one security person. Um, called names no matter where I was. The things that came out were just the most vile stuff. And if you're a decent person, A, that gets to you. B, it does take some point where you, where you go, okay, I don't think I'm that person, but what am I doing that would make all of these people? Is there something that yeah. I have done that I should correct. And I went through that and I tried to correct the things that I could. Uh, made no difference because it's not honest, but at least I was honest. And I think Dave is, is again, like you. I think those things have to bother you. Yeah. Especially if you are, as he proved in that story, authentically, yeah. deeply, not that. Exactly. Uh, uh, and and it's not going to stop. It's just not going to stop. These, these these we've become inhuman to one another. So true. What do you think about? Uh, so I I talked about this briefly with uh, Megan Kelly. Uh, she was on the show recently. I mean, b- both of you, and for different reasons, are two of my favorite media personalities because I think oh, you're, you. you're both very authentic. No, I'm I'm just my being... looks. Yeah. I was going to say, in your case, it's your looks. Yeah. and uh, looks, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, hey, my eyes are up here, Gad. My <laughs> eyes are up here. Uh, now, she in her in her show, she often talks about, you know, going to, to the therapist and so on. And so I wanted to ask her, and then I'll, I'll, I'll ask you the same thing. You know, I come from a culture in the Middle East where the, the idea of going to a therapist is very suspect because you come from a culture of honor and shame. 
Mm-hmm. What do you mean? You expect me to go sit in front of a third party and lay out my flaws, my frailties, my insecurities? Never. I will die before. See, you see that finger? That that that's an Arabic. Yeah. That's a Middle Eastern, right? So the it's it's complete anathema to actually go to a therapist. Just roll up your sleeve, stop whining, and let's get to work, right? And so one of the projects that I'm working on with a colleague of mine who's also a very good friend, a clinical psychologist, is that we're going to study cross-cultural perceptions in mental therapy. Now, in the, in the Western tradition, as a matter of fact, you know, if you remember in the 30s, 40s, 50s, no person worth their salt did not have a therapist, even if they didn't need to be in therapy. It was just part of your sort of personal growth and personal development. So where, where do you stand on this? Having had addiction problems and so on, do you, have you found, I don't know if you've been to therapy. I don't know if you ever wanted to. So, you know, yeah. So, so here's, um, uh, I don't know where the 20s and 30s and 40s, where that came from, because my my grandparents grew up at that time and my grandparents looked at people who went to a psychiatrist as a little suspect because <laughs> I mean, there might be something wrong with them. You know, it was still back then. I think it was still um, mental institutions and everything else. And I think the the up until recently, I think the psychiatric community uh, has has done some real good and it doesn't have that stigma for most people. It doesn't have that stigma. Um, and that's a good thing. Uh, I have gone to therapists. I've gone to therapists that, uh, I'm smarter than. So if I don't want to tell them something, I don't, I only do that. If I was told to go, you know, if my wife had said, you've got to go have therapy and I don't want to go have therapy. You know, I can skate around those guys in, in a heartbeat. Um, uh, but that's not the point of, of therapy. I've gone to spiritual counseling. I've gone to um, psychiatrists or psychologists, and I've also um, depression runs in my family like a pack of wild elephants. Wow. Uh, and so does suicide. And so I have gone for clinical uh, psychiatry as well. And I think all three of them are very important. And what is there a particular trait of whether it be the spiritual? advisor or the clinical psychologist or the psychiatrist that you found was particularly, you know, likely to help? I mean, in other words, is there a trait of that person? Is there a quality that either allowed you to mesh and view that therapy as effective or not? Because then I'm going to tell you what so, the research shows. Okay. So let me, let me give, can I give you three different examples? Go for it. Okay. So one that I found, uh, effective, is one, and this is how I use a psychiatrist, or used to use, and I might use again someday, um, to to talk to me because I've gone through depression and I've had uh, suicidal thoughts and I have had suicides in my family. We are very, very aware of our moods in my family, and uh, so a a clinician, if you will, a psychiatrist that will just talk to me clinically about how is this feeling? What is that happening? How is this going in your day? I know the parameters of clinical depression and I am on guard with that. So I think that's a really, for me, that was a very important thing to have in and for my children and my family. Um, the, the other is what I found. There are two others. You said there are three. Yeah, there is. Okay. So the second one is, um, we had a uh, suicide scare with my uh, with my son uh, about two years ago. Oh no! 
Yeah, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. How old is he? He was 15 at the time. And uh, it's just, you know, one o'clock in the morning, the police arrive at your house. Is your son here? You're like, what, what's going on? Suicide attempt. A friend just reported. And uh, uh, it's just it's horrible. It is oh absolutely God. horrible. Um, uh, but we found a really great psychiatrist who I really like. My son doesn't. But I really like him because... I watched him uh, after he talked to my son. We did some family stuff with him, and he he does all of his thinking on his windows, like I used to when I was putting things together when I was in New York, and I'd have these windows, and I would just use erasable markers to write on them and tie things together. And that's exactly what he does. He listens, and then when he finish, you know, he goes, "Okay, that doesn't really fit with this. Help me solve that." And he can solve things pretty quickly that you might have missed because you have the narrative that's running. Mm-hmm. And I like him because he's a fast thinker and he connects things that we as a family might have missed. Then the third example, I was with my son with a therapist he does like just this week and we were sitting in there and he is he he said to him, "Hey, uh what was it? Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't this because it was much more off the beaten path. But it was like, hey, did you win your football game last week? And he hasn't seen this guy for maybe three months. And he said, hey, did you? Did this happen? And how's you know how's Peter, your friend? And blah. blah. And he wasn't looking at notes. He genuinely cared about my son. And there's something to that genuine connection. That was a little overwhelming. I just loved. I, I walked out of there loving that guy um, because he actually has. It's not a job for him. I mean, it is, but he has found the way to actually love my son as well. You know, so all your three answers are, are brilliant, but I the one the the research that I was going to cite is related to your third answer, which is the most important quality. More important, whether your degrees are from Harvard or MIT or whatever. Uh, you know how many degrees you have it's the empathy and the uh, the yeah. attentiveness to live right you can have a therapist who is the most qualified person you could ever think of but when you sit next to them they're sort of doing the joe biden looking at their watch or clock they're not yeah. they're not exhibiting cues of empathy right in right. that case you better find the friend who has zero training in psychology or psychiatry, but who's very empathetic. And I can predict for you that that friend listening to your troubles is going to be more effective as your therapist, yes. right? Well, Gad, I have to tell you, I have a friend who um, they didn't know what was going on. I'm Actually, after this, I'm going to see him in the hospital. They didn't know what was going on. And I haven't said this to somebody else at all because we just found out it's not this. And uh, but uh, he's he's my brother. I mean, he's my best friend. He grew up in my house when we were teenagers. Um, And he goes in with some stomach issues. They don't know what's going on. And an oncologist walks in. There's been no testing done except for a CAT scan. And the oncologist walks in with his wife, the two of them. And he says, uh, I, I think, I really think you have stage four cancer. And they were like, uh, what? I mean, just like that. I really think you have stage four cancer. 
Well, she fell apart and it screwed with his head. And when I saw him the next day, he was like, Glenn, I just don't think that's right. I just don't feel like that's right. And I'm like, geez, man, who says that? It's a doctor who believes he's always right. He's God and he has absolutely no empathy. He could not see himself in the role of my friend or the wife. He couldn't do it. That's that is that's just beyond uh, bad, especially for a doctor. And the the cruel irony is that that person, the physician, is looking at people who are at their, by definition, most vulnerable, most vulnerable. physical, spiritual, psychological state. And rather and they than, don't know what the truth is. They're looking for the truth. And here comes a doctor who's supposed to tell you the truth. And he knows and he just says it. And you are you could be devastated by that. If you walk into a doctor's office and know that they don't know most likely their ass from their elbow when it comes to looking over the horizon unless it's something very specific and they have all the data points. Right. And even then they can be wrong. Yeah. But if you don't go in with that attitude, you can if you get a bad bedside doctor, man, it's trouble. I hear you. A couple of more and questions. You know what, Gad, can yeah, I, go can I just please, please. say this too? On the empathy thing, though, they, those doctors don't have empathy. Gad, that's why you and I have to try to not listen to your wife because we we don't. How many times? How many times have you been with somebody and there's been something that you really were angry about, and then when you talked about it, let's say seventy percent of the time it was right. Okay, you were right to be mad because that's where. But there's a good 30, 35% of the time where, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You thought what? Right. No, 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 that didn't happen that way. And just little things that they have wrong, and it might have been something that you or I have said a long time ago that they misinterpreted, and then it just built. Yeah. And as your fame gets bigger, they're like, but he doesn't believe in this. He's a fraud. And just that one correction, if we can just have enough empathy to be able to actually listen to somebody who hates us. So true. All right, a couple of more questions because otherwise I could keep you here for another four hours. Uh, that's how much fun it is to talk to you. Uh, let's do two more questions. Is that okay? Do we have? Are we, we have yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Sure. Question one. A lot of people would love to be the next Glenn Beck, but there is no, unlike going to architecture school or going to become a physician or an accountant, there is no exact set trajectory, you know, for me to become a, you know, a great media personality. So what would be the trajectory or rules of thumbs or lessons that you would impart on people who say, I want to have a great career in the public sphere? What would you give those people? Uh... A few pointers. First, you have to find your authentic self. You have to know who you are. Um, I went through one of the most difficult uh, uh, job interviews of my life. I had been out to dinner. Roger Ailes had invited me to dinner. He was the president of Fox News. He invited me out to dinner several times, and we had wonderful conversations. He is. He was into... Uh, things like I was, you know, Jack Parr. 
And so we could talk about the art and the craft of a great performer. And we never really talked about the news per se. We just talked about television, how to use it. He was really a genius. And uh, then he wanted to offer me a job. And so I went in and I was expecting to have that Roger Ailes. And that's not the one I got. Um, there were three people at the table. And when I sat down, uh, he w w it was very awkward for a long time. He said nothing. No one said anything. And I'm like, okay, who's going to say something? And uh, his first question, his first statement or question to me was, what did, you, uh, what did you think of the 1972 Chinese uh, treaty that Kissinger brokered? And I'm, 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 I'm like, you know, that, that's hello. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't know anything about that treaty. And uh, I went, uh, you know, Roger, I, I, I have no idea. I, I have no idea. Sorry, I'm not up on the 1972 China trade treaty. He said, hmm. Didn't say anything for about four minutes. And I'm just like, oh, my God. And then he said, okay, well, you got to know this. Tell me the four best things that Eisenhower did that you think we should do now. Now, now I can answer that question. But then, again, I was like, I, I, I'm not up on my Eisenhower, okay? And, uh, and I said... You know, Roger, I've got two ways to go. I could bluff, because I know a little bit about that, but I have a feeling you would know the minute I started. Or I could end this interview and the possibility of working with you by saying, I don't know that one either. And I think I'm going with the last one. And then he didn't talk to me again. This went on for two hours. And I mean, he pushed me up against the wall. He tried to make me angry. Um, he did everything he could. He challenged me on everything. I felt like I had lost 10 pounds by the end of this interview. And, and I certainly was not getting the job because every indication was he hated me and everything that I believed. And he was good at convincing me of that. And uh, he said, okay, I think we've heard enough. And everybody stood up, and I stood up, and I was putting on my coat, and I was like, well, this has been good. This has been fun. You know, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm done. I'll never see them again. And uh, he looked at me, and for the first time he smiled, and he shook my hand, and he said, young man, it is very rare to sit with a man who knows who he is, knows who he is not, is willing to say what he knows and willing to say, I don't know. Oh, that said, is a fantastic story. Right? And, and by the way, that, that's who you have to be if you're going to be successful. You have to be. Otherwise, there's too many cards you're going to be playing that, that you won't know how to handle. So I, I, would, I would summarize this fantastic story with two words, epistemic humility, right? A good thinker, a good scientist knows what he or she knows and knows what they don't know. So when I'm asked about a topic that I think I deserve to have all the swagger because I really know what I'm talking about, then I will walk with that kind of self-confidence. But if you ask me a question, you tell me, hey, God, uh, Justin Trudeau was one of the first politicians to legalize marijuana in Canada. 
Can you give me the pros and cons? I'm going to look at you and say, you know what? I just haven't done the requisite homework to be able to offer you a really good solution. And And so many people are afraid to say that. And it is so empowering because the person, unless they have a political agenda, the person across from you goes, okay. And, And by the way, it goes back to, I think, probably the topic that's been most uh, pervasive throughout our conversation today authenticity because you're being authentic about what you know and don't know and that mm-hmm. by the way creates trust if i stand up in front of a bunch of undergrads who are 20 21 years old all looking at me because you know they know me and so on as if i know everything and then some kid asks something and i go wow what an amazing question you know what i don't know the answer to that why don't you send me an email and remind me so i can go and check it Right away, that creates trust because they're saying this guy is not so full of himself that he's willing to BS us, even though we probably won't even know that he's BSing us. Mm -hmm. Rather, he admits in front of the whole class that he's been stumped by this question by a 20-year-old. So I think it creates trust. It does. It does. By saying you you have to know, you know, um, Neil Armstrong wrote a friend of mine's children a letter and said the most important, he asked, would you write my children and tell, tell them what you think it takes to be a man? And uh, the, the most important thing he said was trust. He said, if we didn't have trust with every single person on the line, we would have never made it to the moon. He said, a, yeah. a, a man must know that everyone along the line is telling them the truth. Otherwise, you'll never achieve anything great. Fantastic. One, Last, one, oh, one, right, one, right. Wait, one other thing on this. Yeah. Um, I, I made a promise when I was 16 years old to a guy who was, he was the programmer of the decade back in the 70s. And about 1982, he kind of takes me under uh, his wing and he teaches me all kinds of stuff. And now it would be kind of creepy. He was like, are you like a pedophile? Why are you hanging out with this young kid? <laughs> None of that happened. Um, but uh, he was always forthcoming on everything and a real mentor. And I asked him when I left about 19, I said, why did you do that? You had no reason to take me at 16 and with the, you know, the garbage I was doing on the radio station to teach me like you did. And he said, because I saw something in you that I had when I was your age. And he said, and I didn't do it. I knew this conversation would come. And so I want you to now promise that when you see that person, you will give them everything you know. And I've done that a couple of times to people. And the reason why I bring this up is because you asked about people that want to try to do I just hired somebody who um, had just started podcasting, uh, had done maybe three podcasts. Nobody was listening to them. And they had written something that was really eloquent. And what they had learned from me over the years and and then how that folded into their life. And I was a I was a footnote to this story. Um, and I read that. And so I got the phone number of this person and I said, so you want to be a storyteller? And I actually got the first, I got the, the text. And so I wrote to her and I said, so you want to be a storyteller? And she said, this isn't Glenn Beck. And we went back and forth for a while and I had to finally call her. So she believed it was me. Um, 
but uh, she said yes. And I said, so write some stories for me. I want you to write. And I worked with her and I did what Roger Hales did. I pounded her to the wall and uh, she passed and said, I don't know that. But then followed it up with an email two days later. I've read up on that. And here's what I think this means. Nice. I, I just hired her uh, Tuesday. Oh, wonderful. And she's writing. I, 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 I want the opportunity to share what I know. I'm looking for people that want to do this and uh, do it right. Not for fame and fortune because that's battery acid. Wonderful. Last question. Uh, so let me set it up. I always uh, ask this question of my guests. It's sort of become a tradition. One of my former professors of psychology uh, in my doctoral training, his name is Thomas Gilovich. He pioneered the uh, study of psychology of regret. The idea being that if you ask people, what is it that you regret most in life, looking back at your life, there are two types of regret that we could think of. There is regret due to action. Uh, yeah, I regret that I cheated on my wife and that caused the dissolution of my marriage. So I did something and I regret it versus regret due to inaction. I regret Holy that shit. I... Right. I regret that I never pursued my passion as an artist. Instead, I followed my dad's footstep becoming an accountant and I hate my life as an accountant, right? Now, for long-term uh, view of regret, most people actually are much more haunted by regret due to inactions. And so having set that up for you, what are your regrets and are you willing to discuss some of them with us? Yeah, I have. I suppose I have uh, several. Most of them come from stupidity. But the ones I really regret are omission uh, and uh, are um, uh, my first regret is when I was 14, um, my mom and I didn't know she was clinically depressed. I knew that there was trouble and she was an alcoholic and. Um, and my mom and I were really, really close and I was walking through the hallway at one point and I look in, she's in the kitchen, she has her hands in the sink and she's washing the dishes. And I heard almost an audible voice, stop, go back, tell her you love her. She won't be here long. And I dismissed that. And I, I walked into my room and I blew it off. And uh, it was a couple of weeks later that she died. And I regret dismissing intuition, dismissing, um, dismissing that so much. Is um, it because, so you, you think because had you listened to that intuition, the trajectory could have been alterable? No, I just would have had another, I don't know what, I just would have had another interaction with my mom. Got it. And um, living with the fact that you, you know, I think some people might relate in a different way. You have an intuition, don't do something, and you do it anyway, and it turns out poorly. The second story um, revolves around my dad. Um, I didn't know until I, it, I was 30, 35 in my life why my dad and I had such an awkward childhood and all of the kids did. My mother was abusive to my sisters. I wasn't aware of that. And my dad was kind of absent because he was abused by my father. 
He ran away from home at 16 and was repeatedly raped uh, by men. And Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, it was horrible. And he never said it to anyone until he said it to me at a, when I was about 35. And he said, listen, there, you, you need to know just for family, you just need to know a few things. And I was like, oh, my gosh. But everything kind of came into focus once he did that then i was i wasn't angry about the fishing trip that we had that was so wildly weird with my dad and so uncomfortable i understood because he, my grandfather used to be a fisherman and he would go out fishing and that's when he would really abuse my dad and so when my dad got into the boat to take me fishing for the first time it was so awkward and weird i never wanted to fish again um and as part of that passed on to me because I was um, I didn't know how to be a dad because I didn't really have a dad and I, I didn't know how to relate. And I grew up talking to adults, you know, uh, so I'm 10 years old and I could hold a conversation with an adult, but I can't really relate to my friends because I'm not on the same wavelength. Uh, and so when my kids were born, I really freaked out because I thought I'm going to screw them up. I, I just, and I buried myself in work. Um, and so when I had children, I felt like I didn't know how to interact with them. Um, because of, because of, you know, my dad, I didn't really feel like I had a dad. Uh, and then after I sobered up, I married a wonderful woman and she didn't put up with that. She was like, you're a good person. So you know how to be a good dad. And I'm like, I don't know how to, I don't even know how to throw a baseball. You don't have to. You just have to listen and be there. And so my regret is the, my first two children, we didn't have, uh, uh, we didn't have the memories that I have with my later two children. But now my older children live right next door to me. And uh, we are, we have all the rest of our lives to build and, we become this great, great family. It's just getting past the crap that you think about yourself or others have made you think. Just relax. You are the definition of realness, of authenticity. I am proud to call you a friend. Thank you for Likewise. calling back when we're having all these technological difficulties. Yeah, it was such a pleasure, Glenn. Uh, I will uh, tag you when it's up. Thank you so much for granting great. me this time. Have a great weekend and we'll talk soon. Thank you. And uh, let me know when your book's coming out so I can have you back on my podcast. Anytime. I, Thank you. There's joy talking to Gab. Thank you so much, buddy. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Cheers. Bye.